You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So we're going to get Ian up to continue his, his sessions in John. I believe this is the third week in John 3.16. Uh, yes. <laughs> so if you didn't know it before, it may not be the last either. <laughs> so a fair bit in John 3.16. So if you didn't know before, hopefully you're getting a great in-depth and, and knowledge of John 3.16. That's, that's great. So we'll just pray for him before he jumps into it. Father, we, we thank you, Father, for Ian's heart, Lord. Lord, we thank you for his... Um, just his study in John, Lord, and preaching through it, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that he's getting so much out of this from you, Father, Lord. We thank you that he's not just skipping over small scriptures in one week, Father, Lord, but he's spending the time in these weeks, Lord, so we can get a deeper knowledge of you, Father. And we thank you, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that we'll, we'll grow deeper, Lord, and know your heart deeper, Father, Lord. And would you continue to work in us, Lord, and bless Ian, Lord, as he brings the word, Father, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, everybody. Um, yeah, open up to John 3.16 in your Bibles, your smartphones, whatever it is you have. It's got fingerprints all over it, has it? Yeah. <laughs> it's such amazing stuff to be found in, I mean in the Bible on the whole, but John's Gospel, it just staggers me, the depth that's in this Gospel. But let's get started, shall we? We'll launch straight into the passage. <clears throat> John 3, verse 7, we start with, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now you might be wondering why it is that I read such a large portion of scripture every week even though we only focus on one verse, one sentence, even a couple of words of it. Why waste all that time reading out that long passage and then just focus on a couple of words? Well, there is method in my madness. 
One of the great tragedies, I think, of Christianity is the tendency, and we all have this tendency, to pick and choose only the verses we like, the ones that make us feel good, the ones that we're most comfortable with, the verses that confirm our bias towards something. And then we tend to ignore all the rest of them. And when we do that, we end up building our faith and our life on isolated chunks of the Bible, and we miss the big picture. That leads to a shallow faith. It leads to a faith that can't weather storms. And Jesus promises storms. You want to know why so many so-called Christians turn their back on their faith? And there's been some pretty uh, well-known, some pretty famous ones renounce their faith just in recent weeks and months. But you want to know why so many of these people turn their back on their faith? It is at least in part, I think, because their faith is not built on the solid rock of the word of God and the whole word of God. It's built on the bits and pieces they like. And when things don't work out quite the way those bits and pieces suggest they should, it rattles their their faith to the core and they turn their back on God. We've got to build our faith on the whole word of God, not just the parts we like. So when I'm preaching to you about a couple of words of one sentence, I want you to see the things in the context of the whole passage, in the context of John's Gospel and in the context of the whole Bible. I want your faith to be built on something solid and unshakable. I want your faith to be shaped by the Bible, the whole Bible, not just the bits you like. One day the Bible tells me, I'm going to have to give an answer to God for your souls. That's a terrifying thought. But it's what the word says. I'm going to have to give an answer for your souls. And I'm hoping you won't stand in front of God and say, why didn't he tell me about this? That's why we spend so much time reading so much of the text around what I'm preaching on. The whole Bible, as I've told you, in the past tells the same story from verse 1 of Genesis 1 right to the end of Revelation, the very last verse. It's not a collection of quotable quotes, of wise sayings. It's not even a collection of mystical sayings. There's some stuff that's hard to understand, there's no doubt about that, but if you're prepared to dig, the Bible will yield its treasures to you. It tells us a story from the first page to the last about God. It tells us about man. It tells us about sin. It tells us about salvation from sin. From the start to the finish, that's the story of the Bible. So it's important that we see the parts in relation to the whole. That's why we so frequently go back to the Old Testament when we're preaching from a New Testament text. So you can see that this is one story all the way through. So you get the whole context, the bigger picture. Today, of course, will be no different. Today, we'll be focusing only on the part of John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we'll be going back to the book of beginnings, Genesis, to shed light on what John's talking about there. Now, John's gospel is steeped in the Old Testament. When he wrote John 3.16, and he didn't write chapter 3, verse 16. That was added centuries and centuries later. 
that when he wrote that, when John wrote chapter 3 verse 16, and he didn't write 3.16, it was written, it was put in by others. But when he wrote John 3.16, he had in mind a specific event in Genesis, which we'll get to shortly. But when he opened his gospel, John 1.1, he also had a specific event in Genesis in mind the creation of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John was thinking back to the very first verses of Genesis. He had specific events in mind when he writes about light and darkness, life and death, about the Word making his dwelling place amongst men about the Lamb of God, about true Israelites, about lifting up the Son of Man in the sight of the nation. John was thinking back to specific events in the Old Testament. John's Gospel is too deep and too profound for us to have any chance of understanding it if we ignore all these Old Testament examples and types and prophecies and illustrations. That's why... We spend so much time reading the text and going back to the Old Testament to help us understand what is it that God's speaking to us here about. So we've seen in the first half of John chapter 3, eternal life comes about when we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we face a universal problem that none of us by nature can see him clearly enough to believe. We've inherited our spiritual eyesight from our first father, Adam, which means we're blind to God. We're not spiritual people by nature. We're fleshly. But God is spirit. That's one of the reasons why we can't see him clearly enough to believe. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, it tells us in Ephesians. The other problem we have is that we've inherited Adam's sinful nature from him, the sinful nature that he passed on to all of his descendants. Flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus said. So what we need is fresh eyes. And we need a new spiritual ancestry. We need a new father. Instead of Adam, we need God himself as our father. And to have that new father, we need to be reborn. Born again, born from above. Spirit gives birth to spirit, Jesus said. The act of new birth, regeneration, is performed by God himself when he takes out our heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh into us. He gives us a new spirit. And by that he enables us to look to Christ, lifted up on that Roman cross, and believe. When that happens, when we look and believe, we have eternal life. That's what John chapter 3 is all about. But it only ever happens because God so loved the world. He loves a human race that is, by birth and by nature, in rebellion against him. So the cross is actually a demonstration of God's love for sinful human beings. For God so loved the world that he gave, it tells us. What kind of love is it that doesn't give anything, that doesn't cost anything? Surely, love is measured by the value of the gift, 
That makes sense, doesn't it? Now, if you watch reality TV or soap operas or Hollywood movies, you'll see rich men buying expensive cars for their wives to demonstrate their love. I'll buy a $300,000 Mercedes or a $3 million diamond ring to, de- to demonstrate just how much they love their wife. Love is measured by the value of the gift. But does that mean that the wealthy love their wives more than the poor man who can only afford a $3 block of chocolate loves his wife? If love is measured by the value of the gift, I guess yes, it does. But maybe, maybe not so much. While the wealthy may be buying expensive gifts, it only makes a tiny, tiny dent in their overall wealth. They're giving out of an overflow, an abundance. They're not missing what they've just spent. So the question we need to ask then is, what is the cost to them of giving that expensive car or ring? What value do they really place on it? For they're giving gifts that are proportionally almost costless to them. In soap operas, on TV, and sometimes in real life, the gift may actually have a lot less to do with the value of their love and a lot more to do with the burden of their guilt about an affair they're having. So it's not always the measure of the value of love. For the super wealthy, the gift is often little more than another disposable item. And when you see the sheer extravagance and wastefulness of some of the lifestyles of them, it suggests exactly that. It's just another disposable item. If that is true, then we have the real measure of the value of their love. Now, of course, whenever we use earthly analogies to try and explain or understand anything about God, it falls short in some area. If we're measuring love by the value of the gift, what are we to do with a God for whom a Mercedes or a diamond ring are worthless trinkets? If God wants to give you a diamond ring, he can create one with a mere word, without the slightest depletion of his, of his resources. When we're talking about God, material gifts have no value in the slightest. You cannot measure God's love by material gifts. We're going to measure the value of God's love. We'll need a measuring stick much, much bigger than material goods. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, John wrote. Parents, do you love your children? A crazy question. The answer is obvious. Of course you do. You'd do anything to protect them from harm, wouldn't you? Even if that meant laying down your own life to protect them, you would do that. How painful would it be to lose your child? Now, some of you young people just will have to imagine what this is like. But some of you older people know the pain of losing a child. Some have experienced it, and it may be too painful to even think about. Even the loss of a child to miscarriage is heartbreakingly painful. What about the loss of a child you've loved and cared for and nurtured for five years, 15 years, 50 years? A parent is not supposed to outlive their child. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The children are supposed to bury their parents. It's one of the reasons why it's so painful to lose a child is it's just not right. 
It's not the right order of things. Sadly, that's the way things go often in this fallen world. We know parents who have lost children, some in the womb, some in infancy and some in adulthood, and they never really get over it. The grief stays with them forever. And that shouldn't really be a surprise. That's the pain of losing a child. What pain must Adam and Eve felt when their firstborn son murdered his brother? It was the first murder in history and it was in only the second generation of humans. Every death at any age and especially at a young age should be a reminder to us that this is not the way things are supposed to be. Let's go back to Genesis 22. Have you got your Bibles? Open up to Genesis 22. Let's see the event that John had in mind when he wrote verse 16. It's the story of Abraham, the father of our faith. Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children. Sarah was barren and that in that culture was a point of great shame and humiliation and sadness for them to be barren. It was even considered by many to be evidence that the person was cursed by God. And not only was Sarah barren, they were old. They were in their 70s at this point. And Sarah was well past the age of being able to have children. But that's when God shows up to make a promise to Abraham that he would have a son. Have you noticed God likes to make promises to us that only he can fulfil? That's a good thing. Otherwise we do things in our own strength. Now this promise brought great joy to Abraham and Sarah obviously but it was another 25 years before the promise was fulfilled. Abraham was 100 years old when Sarah finally gave birth to a son. 100 years old. At long last though, Abraham had an heir and Sarah had her shame taken away. Can you imagine their delight? Not only have they finally got an heir, but their delight, God has finally fulfilled his promise. So they named their son Isaac. And Isaac is a name that means laughter. Imagine their joy. When Isaac was a young man, God throws a spanner in the works. And that's what Genesis 22 is all about. Am I going the right way, John? Genesis 22, starting at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so that they went both of them together. 
And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his knife, his hand, and took his knife to slaughter his son. We can only imagine what was going through Abraham's mind at this time. God gave me this gift and now he's going to take it away? What's going on? And notice God didn't make it easy for Abraham to obey. Take your son, he said. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's almost like God's rubbing it in. Making it as difficult as possible for Abraham to obey. What must Abraham have been going through? What emotions, what turmoil, what confusion was raging inside Abraham? What at that point was the cost to Abraham to obey God? How can we count that cost? How can we put a value on that cost? Not only was Abraham about to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved, which was bad enough, he was sacrificing all the descendants that God had promised that he would have. Which means he was also about to sacrifice God's promise to him. If we don't understand the cost of the sacrifice Abraham was called to make, we'll never appreciate the value of the gift that God has given us in the sacrifice of his son. So Abraham and Isaac set out walking for three days to Mount Moriah. When they arrived, they prepared the sacrifice and Abraham built the altar, laid the firewood on it and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, it tells us. We wonder about what Abraham was going through, but what about Isaac? What must Isaac have been thinking at this time? As far as I can tell from the scripture... Isaac didn't argue or resist or even question his father. Imagine your father tying you up and putting you on top of the firewood about and pull out a knife about to murder you as a sacrifice and you don't resist. Isaac was a young man. He was 14, 15 years old, I think. Abraham was probably 115 or thereabouts at the time. If Isaac resisted, he could have easily overcome his father. But it seems he went willingly to be sacrificed. That should make us think of someone else who went willingly to a cross. It should make us think of that because that's the whole point of the story of Abraham and Isaac. But we should think of the cross. So how could Abraham even consider the horrible and final act of sacrificing his son, his only son, whom he loved. The book of Hebrews tells us why. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up 
his only son. He had the knife drawn, ready to plunge it into Isaac. He was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was able to obey God because he believed that somehow, even if Isaac was dead, God was still able to fulfil his promise. This story is given to us to illustrate something about the cost of love and to teach us something about the value of God's love towards us. So what is the value of the gift that God gives us? His only son. What is it the father actually said about his son Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What's the value of this son? The value of Isaac was untold, immense, uncountable. What was the value of this son? God's son in whom God himself is well pleased. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by this Son all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. What's the value of this Son? He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be above all. In everything he might be transcendent. In everything he might be without peer. In everything he might be incomparable. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What value can you place on the creator and sustainer of all things? He's the creator of the sun, the stars, the moon and every tiny atom that makes them up. He's the creator of the Himalayan mountains and the creator of Ayers Rock. Is the creator of the Pacific Ocean and the mighty Murray River. What value will you put on the creator of the little finch and the soaring eagle, the creator of the shy bilby and of the thundering rhinoceros? What value can you place on him? What price can you put on his life? He is before all things and above all things. His value is infinite. There is nothing that compares to the value of this Son of God. And this infinite value is the value of the gift the Father has given us. It's beyond our comprehension. We can't imagine infinite anything, let alone the infinite value of Jesus Christ. But this is the measure of of the love of God towards us. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends, John wrote. And John also wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us.
truly the measure of love is the value of the gift given. And the most precious gift in the universe was given on our behalf so that we may be saved. When Abraham lifted his knife to slay his son, his only son whom he loved, God stopped his hand. God then provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. And Abraham reached out his hand, it tells us in verse 10, and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. For you have, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, how beautifully perfect are the types and shadows and pictures and prophecies of Christ that are found in the Old Testament. Isaiah got it exactly right when he wrote in in chapter 9, verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He nailed it right on the head. Isaiah was looking back to Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. And at the same time, he was looking forward to Christ on the cross. While I'm on a subject of perfect pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, did you realise that the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice, Mount Moriah, is the very same place that the Son of God was crucified, was offered as a sacrifice, Mount Moriah. Mm, yeah, beautiful pictures, beautiful pictures. Some people have raised the accusation of child brutality in protest against the sacrificial nature of the cross. If it's true that the father forced his son to be killed on the cross in the place of someone else, then that is akin to child abuse and we should rightly condemn it. Because of this, some people refuse to accept that Jesus was crucified as a substitute for us. And worse than that, they refuse to believe in a God who can be party to such an act. Is that what really happened at the cross? Did God force his son to do something he didn't want to do? Was Jesus a weak, helpless child, unable to resist the tyranny, the rage, the cruelty of his father? Far from it. The story of Abraham and Isaac tell us otherwise. Isaac didn't resist. And Isaac is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus' own words tell us otherwise. I lay down my life for sheep, he tells us in John ten fifteen. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus wasn't a weak, helpless child forced to do something against his will. In the courts of God in eternity past, the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit conferred amongst themselves about how they were going to deal with the problem of sin that they knew was coming when they created man. The plan they came up with is that one of them would take on human flesh, would suffer and would die. And by this act, human sin could be be punished and salvation provided for rebels. And the son was the one who put up his hand, so to speak, and said, Here am I, send me. There was no coercion. There was no inequality in power in the Godhead. There was no disagreement about the course of action to take. The father sent the son because the son volunteered. And he volunteered knowing full well the cost to himself. It was the son's plan no less than it was the father's plan. There was no brutality from the father in the cross. The only brutality was from our side. Rather, the cross is a demonstration of love, sacrificial love, substitutionary love. Did you notice that the verse doesn't say anything about the son's love for us? John 3.16 doesn't mention the son's love for us, although it's true that he does love us. But it tells us of the Father's love for us. For God, the Father, so loved the world. The Father gave the Son out of his heart of love for the world. It wasn't dragged out of him as if he was unwilling to give it. And as I said last week, there was nothing sloppy or wishy-washy or sentimental about the Father's love for us. His love is something that costs and costs dearly. This is the love of God, the love of the Father. In this, the love of the Father was made manifest amongst us, that God the Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, the Father, loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the full penalty of our sins, due for our sins. How does the cross demonstrate God's love for us? How can the death of the only perfect person in history do anything for us? Simply that we were all born dead in trespasses and sins, according to the Bible and according to our experience. Our spiritual deadness separates us from God and our sin demands punishment and eternal death. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't live a sin-free life now and we can't pay for the sins we've already committed. If we're to have any hope of salvation, we need someone to do it on our behalf. We need someone perfect. We need someone sinless. We need someone of infinite value. We need someone who is able to absorb the full wrath of God in our place. And the only person able to do that 
is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's own Son, in whom he is well pleased. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we might receive the grace and the mercy that he deserves. Some people don't like the idea of Jesus being our substitute, but it's what the Bible teaches from start to finish, that Jesus is our substitute. It's what happened in the beginning when God killed an animal to provide clothes to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. It's what happened for decades in the tabernacle in the wilderness and for centuries in the temple in Jerusalem when the priests offered up lambs and goats and bulls and doves in sacrifice for their own sins and for the sins of the people. And it's what happened when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness that we just read recently about in verses 14 and 15. It's what happened when God provided a ram to Abraham as a sacrifice, as a substitute for his son Isaac. The pattern is all through scripture. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac finishes with God commending Abraham, saying to him, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. For he who did not withhold even his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all, is it possible that having that having given us his son, he would not give us everything else too? How great is the Father's love. How infinite is the value and the cost of the love he extends to us. On the mount of the Lord, a sacrifice was provided 2,000 years ago in our place to atone for our sins, to reconcile us to God sacrifice of God's own son. Have you laid hold of this sacrifice? This substitutionary sacrifice was made on your behalf. It's the only means of reconciliation. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin on that cross. All we have to do is look to him and believe. Have you done that? Have you looked to him to believe? Have you put your trust in Christ for your salvation? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, no one excluded, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Would you close your eyes? Father, the value of the gift that you have given us in your Son is far beyond our comprehension. In this life, at least, Lord, we will never understand it, but Lord, we are so grateful for it. So grateful, Father, that you so loved this world, so loved the rebels and sinners 
than each one of us was. That you gave a gift beyond value. Truly the the measure of love is the value of the gift and the measure of your love, God, is infinite. The value of that gift, Jesus Christ, your son, your only son whom you love, is infinite. Lord, I pray that you will write these things deep on our hearts, Lord. That we won't walk a day without being grateful, in awe of your love, your grace, your mercy, your gift. And that you'll keep us ever close to your heart, Lord. Lord, I pray for my friends here, that my brothers and sisters, that you'll make the value of this gift a reality to them, Lord. They can walk with a new spring in their step because they know uh, that nothing can separate them from the love of God and the love of God is of infinite value. And Lord, I pray for any others that, that might hear this and and uh, and not yet know that love of God. Lord, would you put a new heart, a new spirit in them? Would you give them eyes to behold Christ on the cross? And look to him and believe. Thank you, Father, for your goodness towards us. Thank you, Father, for your word that is so profound, so precious, so beautiful, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word that reveals more to us about you every time we pick it up and read, that writes more of your truth on our hearts. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, we honour you. And we pray, Lord, that you'll make us every day more like your son, Jesus. That we might uh, shine his light to the world. We might reflect his light to the world. Lord, our greatest prayer is that our friends, our family, our workmates would also come to know this son of God and his infinite value, his preciousness. Pray this in the name of that Son, Jesus. In his name we pray it, Lord. To your glory, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.